This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Dr. Michael Lipson. Hello, Dr. Michael Lipson, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Uh, now, in this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific careers. So, would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? What, where are you on that spectrum? I used to be a researcher years ago, um, but I am now, uh, in terms of my duties at UBC, a full-time professor. Wonderful. And you are an oceanographer, right? Oceanographer and uh, environmental scientist, I guess I would add to that. And uh, what does an environmental scientist mean to you? Well, that's a very good question, Daniel. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, being in environmental science is interesting because of my, my original training is in phytoplankton biology and oceanography. So instead of being trained as an environmental science from the scientist from the beginning, uh, I came to it as, uh, uh, as from my experience uh, working with phytoplankton and carbon uh, in the oceans. So it's interesting that a lot of degrees and disciplines are doing this now where, you know, you, you have your normal concentration of what you train for and then you realize it actually segues quite nicely into the environmental sciences, right? So um, it's great because it's expanded the breadth and the width of my knowledge, and it allows me to approach my uh, discipline in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have done earlier. Um, uh, And it also makes, what makes it most interesting to me, and I think what's most important um, is that it makes it everything much more timely and and of of the, of the, of, of the present and of the future, uh, much more so. And I think it's one of those things that needs to be integrated much more into sort of all the other sciences. That's great. That's a very holistic approach and very, very modern. Now you're saying your first love was phytoplankton. How did you get into phytoplankton? Like I've never seen a phytoplankton Barbie. Uh, did you grow up with <laughs> <about> that? <laughs> uh, my first love was actually uh, literature and philosophy, but that's a whole different story. Um, uh, honestly, uh, uh, it all started where I just wanted to figure out a way to uh, get a job uh, near the ocean uh, because I found myself sort of being near the ocean quite a bit. And this is this seems like kind of a silly thing, but actually, what happened was is uh, it was reading too much Henry Miller um, way back in the day, and because the Henry Miller uh, Library is uh, on the coast of California. Uh, I realized sort of through lots of different steps that uh, um, getting a job researching uh, the, the ocean was something that I would be interested in as a future. Um, and then, but I had no idea what that meant, to be honest with you. So I enrolled in, in uh, uh, ocean sciences at the University of Oregon, went in and basically started asking, telling everybody I wanted to work in marine biology, but uh, uh, they quickly told me that marine biology is, uh, is not what they did. They did oceanography and they explained to me the difference as in it was oceanography studies the whole system. 
right? As opposed to marine biology, which studies a particular critter. And I really like the idea of looking at things as a system. Mm -hmm. I like looking at things in terms of sort of the, again, to use your term holistic, but sort of the interaction. So like, you know, if you see, you know, a, a, a whale in the ocean, like why is it there? What is it doing? What affects it? You know, what's gonna, what's gonna keep it going year after year, you know, like the orcas, you know, off our coast, you know, that kind of stuff. They're interesting, you know, and of course that's what everybody wants to identify with. And then honestly, the thing that really got me was finally seeing phytoplankton under a microscope. If you've never had the opportunity to see phytoplankton under a microscope, I highly encourage anybody to do it, uh, especially diatoms and dinoflagellates. Uh, uh, they are some of the most interesting looking things you'll ever come across, otherworldly. They look like sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of space aliens, I would say, um, from another planet. And uh, in fact, to the point where a lot of scientific shows use plankton and phytoplankton as uh, their, their examples of alien uh, creatures, when in fact they're uh, they did this in the X-Files once where they had an example of a, an alien and it turned out to be, I think, a sea star uh, um, uh, larvae. So that made me very happy. But uh, I really like the way they look. But I also like, and, and this gets back to the environmental science question, how connected everything is, you know, in terms of like, you know, uh, what we do here, how that carbon makes itself into the ocean, mixes in and what that does to the organisms there and where all that stuff goes. So I really like that. And that makes me, um, it, it, it just to think about all the different sort of levels of trophic organisms, that kind of stuff. It, it just, it's a really nice thing to contemplate. You're pulling the threads of our planetary tapestry and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not very well, but doing my best. Uh, we all are. <laughs> Every thread helps. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. I agree with that. Now, you've been at this for a while. Um, have you made any discoveries that you care to share? Nothing specific. I mean, to be honest with you, it's been a while since I've done any any major research. I'm mostly doing sort of teaching. Um, we've, we, we discovered a couple things when I was doing my PhD, uh, sort of the influence of a particular type of phytoplankton called coccolithophores uh, up in the northeast subarctic Pacific. Uh, uh, we, we discovered um, a couple interesting things that bacteria were doing in the Arabian Sea. Uh, when I did some cruises down there, and that was kind of neat, and that the the importance of sort of how they deal with light in a changing regime. So that was that was kind of fun. I'll say now the things that we do that I think are important is being able to get students sort of turned on to these new ideas and making connections that that are, are not yet in the literature and uh, sort of giving them the possibility that instead of sort of going forward in their, their careers and if they wanna become graduate students, thinking that, oh, all the easy stuff or the good stuff has been dealt with, turning that on its head and saying, no, in fact, there's a whole bunch of things, connections that we have to do that we still haven't made yet um, that are really interesting and incredibly important. Um, so that's kind of where I like to concentrate now. Um, my energies and that's where I get the most sort of joy off of sort of what I'm doing. I think the, uh, the quip that I've heard a bunch of times is that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about our own oceans uh, and by far oceans are way more complex and diverse uh, than the surface of that uh, frigid planet so um, yeah there, like you said there's a lot for new scientists to, to learn and big discoveries to be made. 
Oh yeah, and in fact, even this, just as you know, within Canada, you know, there was this huge push, you know, uh, ten years ago, basically do everything we can to study the Arctic, because we sort of decided that we didn't really know much about the Arctic, and so we still don't, and we're losing it really quickly, or not losing it in the sense of it's going away. We're losing it as in the status quo is changing rapidly, mm-hmm. and because the status quo is changing rapidly, we don't really know what the background is because it's changing too quickly to sort of figure out what that is. Right. So um, uh, I think that's really interesting, you know, just in, in our own backyard, we have that canary in the coal rind with all the sort of the ice melt and the disappearance up, you know, and there's very little that was known, you know, um, and we're still trying to punch our understanding of that area. So that's really exciting um, and definitely worth, progressing, you know, and we're going to get some really nice stuff out of there in the next 10, 20 years, for sure. Now, like you said, you're mostly doing teaching right now. uh, And you've actually got a a bit of a heavy course load, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Um, But that's what I do. So that's okay. What do you teach? So right now, I teach uh, um, a biological oceanography course for non-science majors, which I enjoy incredibly. Uh, It's my it's my one time to basically connect the importance of everybody's sort of backyard to uh, disciplines that aren't necessarily focused on the science itself. Um, so I really like that. I've been doing that for years, but that's that's a lot of fun. I teach two environmental science courses. One is an introductory one, um, which is it's really nice to get students coming in who are are sort of um, just beginning their beginning their journey, shall we say, you know, and the nice thing about teaching environmental sciences is, is everybody's interests are so varied. You can't be an expert in anything, you know, just because, you know, some people want to do, you know, they want to do ocean environmental science, but a lot of people want to study maybe the importance of packaging in takeout containers or alternative energies and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's really nice as a teacher because you can't specialize in a topic. You have to specialize in teaching. Mm-hmm. And that makes that very exciting. And we have conversely a, a 400 level course that we're teaching uh, that I co-teach with Tara Ivanochko. And that's really exciting because we have the ability to have students actually take uh, projects and work on them and actually have over a year proof of their change in the system. So, you know, they always say, you know, think globally, act locally. And, you know, that can be kind of a frustrating topic sometimes because you don't know what to do. But we are able in this course to actually show students and by their own experience that if they put some, uh, uh, if they, they work together as a group, you know, so we have, we have things as simple and as local as trying to come up with what to do with that, the local uh, pond that's right outside the UBC bookstore, you know, and so the students last year, Basically, they were talking about how to clean it and how to make it sort of less stinky and less algae because people were offended by the uh, by it looking dirty. And they sort of turned the whole question on its ear and said, well, why don't we instead of worrying about that, why don't we use it as a teaching platform for biodiversity? Because it's full of all these, you know, invertebrates and the water and birds and different types of aquatic photosynthesizers and that kind of stuff. And it was really nice because essentially nobody had really thought about it that way. And now the whole approach to the pond 
has changed because of these students interaction, right? You know, so we're really excited over that. And there's lots of examples of that. And then finally, I'm teaching an advanced uh, biological oceanography course for 400 level students. And that's kind of like a grad level. And we just sort of teach topics that are of interest and that are timely. So it varies from year to year. Biology is great if you're ever interested in teaching biology because it can never be the same every year because everything changes so quickly compared to you know other disciplines like physics and and geology and I'm not saying there are some changes there but like you know in terms of even just relationships between organisms and their classifications every year it's different so you just have to keep on your toes and I feel like as much of a student as I am a teacher uh, which is I guess why we're all here isn't it that we just want to continue our education till the end. I love that story that you gave about the uh, the algae fountain outside the bookstore uh, it's now an unintended uh, habitat. And whenever I see it from now on, I will think of Jurassic Park and just <laughs> that life finds a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, remember, there's life everywhere and some of it can be really interesting. You just have to pay attention, right? Oh, yeah. Now, I know you love field work, um, even when you don't actually get out into the field. Uh, you're still doing field work in your everyday life, uh, like you said, with the, the fountain um, or walks around Stanley Park. Um, one thing I've heard from our, our researchers and scientists is that the crazy stuff happens out in the field. Um, do you have any crazy field stories you'd like to share? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just normal, right? You know, kind of stuff. We have, I've, you know, a whole bunch of things. Um, so as an oceanographer, I did, I don't remember, at least 12 or 14 cruises to this, uh, the Northeast of Arctic Pacific, which is essentially the middle of the Gulf of Alaska. Right. Um, we have a marine station that is, that is basically uh, uh, sampled uh, since 1950 something or other. Right. You know, so we went out. I went out three times a year for a month or so. And that was nice. That was really kind of interesting and lots of cool stuff like, you know, bioluminescence at night along the cruise track where you're, you're just looking off the fantail in the back and the whole back of the boat is glowing. And then sampling certain critters are not there. We saw great white sharks, which at the time was kind of crazy. That was that far north, you know, lots of different birds or so. But the coolest thing we ever saw that I'm that I can remember was we sent down we you know at each station you send down these CTDs right, which uh, uh, on these sort of arrays, and they have water uh, sampling bottles on them, and they're pretty big. I would say they're you know three or four meters across. And you send them down and they go down to about 4,000 meters. So, you know, it's, it takes, you know, a couple hours to go down and up. And it was a night, well, I was on night watch and we were, we were just watching the cable and that kind of stuff. And, you know, after an hour or so putting this thing down, it came back up again. And it was covered in what looked like red rubber, sort of translucent red rubber. And when I say covered, I mean covered. The whole top of it, it was oozing down the bottles and it was like, I'm trying to think what the consistency of it. it felt like latex, like it had that sort of latex rubbery kind of feeling to it. But obviously we hit some kind of invertebrate of some sort. Uh, it was very red and uh, um, uh, we never quite could identify what it was, but whatever it is we got was huge. Oh. I mean, it was, uh, it was like just shreds and obviously we'd run into it or it attacked the, the CTD or something we don't know. 
But uh, that was cool just because it was just kind of unexpected. And then we had to clean it up. That was the other fun thing too, right? Because it's like in addition to sort of all those things, you have to, you have to clean your instruments to make sure it's functional the next time. But uh, yeah, that was, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Um, I highly, as a scientist, you kind of have to make the decision if you want to be a lab person or if you want to be a field person. Uh, and there's no problem with either. We need both. But uh, I realized quite early on that I wanted to go out to sea and be out in the field uh, more than I wanted to be in a lab, you know, and uh, it was very clear to the point now where I actually kind of miss it. I really miss going out and, you know, spending a month out at sea and sampling and, you know, all the hard work you have to do. But, you know, you get lots of fun little information and those kinds of things out of it. How did it smell, the red thing? <laughs> How did it smell? Not as bad as a dead whale. I think a dead whale might be the worst smell I've ever come across. We had a dead, uh, uh, um, was it a dead gray whale uh, off the coast of Point Robert, uh, on the beach of Point Roberts uh, years ago. And the smell was so bad, you could, you could smell it kilometers away uh, based on when the winds were and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but it wasn't, it, it was, it didn't smell too bad, actually. It smelled just sort of like salty organics is kind of the, the way I would classify it. Um, but I've smelled way worse. Now, you've been dancing around this, but I'm, I'm going to ask you outright. Uh, what are the, the real world applications of your research or, or why is it important for your work? <laughs> well, okay. So for my older research, the stuff I used to do, the real world application is we still are struggling with understanding what exactly is happening with carbon in the world. And so I think most people are pretty comfortable knowing that, you know, CO2 is affecting uh, the climate. And, you know, a lot of people, they have different sort of understandings of what that is. But if you start looking at the nitty gritty and sort of start looking at the sort of science level of this topic, and just in the area where I was working up in the Gulf of Alaska, there's so many things that sort of assumptions and generalizations and stuff you go into when you do this and you realize that, you know, perhaps these assumptions are wrong, you know, and perhaps these things that we've been relying on to, you know, uh, for years might not be the best way to sort of look at it and approach it, you know? Um, and so I think it's important for us to get these, this information down because we really need to know, like most, a lot of the carbon in our atmosphere goes into the ocean. What does that mean? Is it stay in the ocean? Does it stay long-term? Does it, does it uh, uh, come back up uh, and efflux back out into the atmosphere? Does it sink to the bottom? What does that mean when it sinks to the bottom? Does that mean it's out of the atmosphere? You know, I think it's becoming more and more clear that we probably might have to do some sort of geoengineering of our climate to sort of sort of deal with the types of global climate change that we're looking at right now. Not to say I'm supporting it under any means, but certainly those conversations are coming up. But like, what do, what do we do with that? Can we use the ocean for these types of things? And, you know, if so, you know, what are the ramifications, you know? And as you know, anything that we do to the world that affects the biology generally does not have a good outcome, you know, uh, in terms of introduced species and, and manipulating, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, food webs and those kinds of things, right? You know, so I would say uh, I, I have a very nice circumstance where I'm able to look at my experience of the carbon sort of movement in a particular location and the, all the background information I had to work on with that and all the details I learned from that. 
And now I can expose my students to that understanding. So when they're looking at environmental science questions, you know, they can, they can understand sort of the real world application of what it means to care about a big phytoplankton bloom, you know, off the coast of BC. Why does that, why does that matter other than it smells and sometimes it glows, you know? Why do we care that this exists? You know, why, why is spring so important to our ecosystem and those kinds of things, right, you know? So um, you can't ignore the biology around you, just like you can't ignore any of the science around you, you know. So, um, you know, I think it's 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 important that we are able to teach these details to people around us, and I think most people with an open mind are willing to learn it uh, on whatever level you you can. It's hard, trying to figure out how to do that. That's the key. That's the trick. That's the magic. And that's not something that we're all perfect at, you know. And we're all working harder to do a better job of it. But that's what essentially your museum is here for. And that's why the PME is actually an important part of this whole equation, right? You know, so exposure is everything. So that's why essentially as much as it's nice to, I mean, it reminds me of myth of the cave, you know, Plato, uh, Plato's Republic, right? You know, where it's, it's, it's one thing to under, try to understand the information you're looking at, but it's an entirely other thing to try to uh, relate that information to people around you, specifically the people around you that aren't necessarily part of your discipline, people who have different disciplines. And again, this gets back to the whole idea of why I really enjoy teaching science to non-science majors, because you know, teaching oceanography to an oceanography major, that's great, that's fine, that's wonderful. I love it. They understand my language. I don't have to explain, you know, details. They get it, you know, that kind of stuff. But I know what type of questions they're going to ask. I know what they're interested in. But trying to to teach to a, somebody who's going to become a lawyer or a fine uh, an artist or a writer or a business person, that kind of stuff, that to me is almost more important because at some point they're going to ask themselves, is it worthwhile for me to make a decision based on what's going on in the environment that might be against something I'm not interested in? Or perhaps we can inspire an artist to do some kind of work that will get people to start talking about it, you know. Um, all these kinds of things are incredibly important. And we, we, it's, to me, what I really try to push is for us to get out of our bubble and to try to you know, spread our knowledge around as much as we can to all the different types of people. And again, that's why places like the PME is so important. You don't want to preach to, to the converted. You want to spread your love of science around. You want to be a, a super spreader of science. Well, less the love of science, more sort of the understanding, like turn people's brains on, you know, and let them sort of, you know, find their own thing. The other thing too, is I, the other thing we try to teach is to tell students to, you know, go to the primary literature, you know, even if you're not a science major, even if you don't understand, you know, carbon movements in the ocean, you know, when you hear somebody telling you that, you know, climate change is not really occurring or, you know, uh, that, you know, snowballs are occurring in, you know, April or something like that, that some American politicians have tried to pull, you know, what, what I want you to be able to do is like, okay, I'm going to take that information and I'm going to go look up some primary research journals in my library. And even though I don't have to understand most of it, I can at least read the abstract and maybe the conclusion. And perhaps I can learn that the information I'm getting is not the real information. It's a sort of an aberration of what was written. 
Um, and that to me is the most important is to try to get away from the middle person who, who perhaps is espousing information that's not quite accurate and get to the real information. That's so important, especially these days when there's so much um, half truths out there or just downright uh, misinformation. And so many facts have been politicized in such a really dis disappointing way. An unfortunate way, yeah. But I will say, just, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not even necessarily saying there are definitely people who are out there who are trying to, to turn science information into a weapon um, against science. That's one group. But I'm, even the, 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 the articles and uh, that try to support the scientific information, even they have error issues, or perhaps they, they, they over-exaggerate the importance of one thing at the expense of something else, you know? But it just seems like everything else, you know, always look for the source material in your work before you cement your opinion, because you just never know where it's gonna take you. So it sounds like you, you have a, a blast doing what you do. Um, have you ever had to struggle unfairly in your field? Uh, no, to be honest with you. I'm, I, I've done okay, you know, kind of thing, you know. Um, uh, I've seen people struggle. I've seen uh, lots of um, unfairness uh, and prejudices within um, within the fields and that kind of stuff. But I think it would be unfair to say that I struggled too much. But uh, I've had plenty of issues with with colleagues and and um, uh, people that I've seen or watched who deserve to um, be where they are but don't get treated like they do. And uh, there's a lot of that going around. Um, it's better in some fields than in others. Uh, I'll say I feel privileged to be part of biology. Biology tends to be a pretty open-minded uh, uh, discipline for the most part, but, uh, and I see a lot of things getting better, but uh, uh, no, I think it would be unfair to say that I, you know, I am where I am because, you know, uh, I did the work, but it's also, relative was relatively easy based on my training and who I am and those kinds of things. Um, but I do recognize that uh, uh, it's not been easy for a lot of people. And uh, in fact, most people have had struggles of sorts. And uh, uh, we really do have to keep working on that because, you know, to be honest with you, a diverse uh, set of opinions and a diverse way of looking at things makes my job much more interesting. It makes your job much more interesting. It makes the questions, the inquiries better, more diverse. You know, this is what people don't understand. It's like, you know, when you have a mixture of concepts and backgrounds and all this other stuff, you know, uh, you get much more interesting sort of conversations, but you also end up getting better science out of it because you get better science questions and stuff. And in fact, my partner was telling me in a meeting that I think you were involved in, they were talking about how they were start going to start looking at people's resumes and CVs for academic jobs. And they're, they're making a push now to look at other things other than publications in terms of uh, importance to what you can add to a department's um, expertise. And I think that's a really nice step that, um, you know, that we start looking at diversity of experience as well as something uh, that, that could end up being a really nice sort of additive to everybody's sort of department and science experience and those kinds of things. Yeah, diversity isn't just a, a feel-good uh, initiative. It, it actually makes a department or a business or uh, a, a community much stronger. Oh, I agree, 100%. And to be honest with you, some of the most exciting science are the questions that that are ones that come from nowhere, in a sense, or come from somebody's uh, uh, differential 
expertise and experience, you know, because if you have a whole bunch of people in a room with the same upbringing and the same training, you know, they're going to come up with the same finite questions. And sometimes you do miss the forest for the trees because often there's like a really basic question that nobody's been able to answer because we've all just assumed it or didn't even really think about it. So, uh, I mean, diversity, and I agree with exactly what you said, diversity isn't just a feel good thing. And it's not just, uh, you know, let's make everybody equal. I think we just all benefit from it, um, uh, from having varied interests, varied thought processes, varied experiences, those kinds of things. Um, and at the very least, it makes life a lot more interesting, which to me is what it's all about. So that's um, talking about you unfairly struggling or not unfairly struggling. Um, but one area in which we've all struggled this past year, it has been with the COVID uh, pandemic. It's affected how we've all had to do our work. Um, have you been able to do your work from home? Uh, has it affected your work? Yeah, how have you fared during this quarantine? Well, let me be clear. Uh, and I'm sure this is something everybody agrees with. COVID sucks. It really sucks. Um, I will say, actually, to be honest with you, UBC has done a really nice job of being supportive of the teaching environment. They've done, I mean, they're not perfect, but compared to my other colleagues that are in other schools and people that are dealing with other environments, um, UBC has always been clear. They told us way ahead of time that we're going online. They told us way ahead of time that they're going online the second term. They gave us money and support and expertise and students, TAs and stuff to help us develop our course and transfer them. So I will say all things considered, we have at UBC, we have less to complain about than others. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, it's by not perfect. That stated teaching online is, uh, has its moments, but it sucks. You know, uh, as I was talking to you before, it's like all those interactions you have with students, you know, the learning is part of it, but the interactions, the discussions, the mentoring, just the, even the short term, like casual conversations about like, you know, uh, movie directors you like, things like that, you know, you just never know where these conversations are gonna go, you know, and this, this you know, online learning is just, you know, really hampered that process. And the thing that I am concerned about the most and the thing that actually makes me sort of stay up, uh, lose sleep the most is I really do feel like uh, uh, more students are falling through the cracks through this process than would normally happen. And I really feel bad because, you know, I think we're doing our best to sort of give everybody the closest, you know, we can to a normal college experience, university experience. But, you know, when you're doing a face-to-face -face class, you know, you can generally see when people are struggling or they're having a hard time, you know, here now we, you know, students just disappear or maybe they're, they show up to class, but they, they, they're not really there or, you know, those kinds of things. And you could really tell in their voices and, you know, our brief conversations um, sort of that it's, there's something going on and it's just so much more difficult to try to figure this stuff out. And then add to that is I can't stand the fact you can't interrupt people when you're in these sort of Zoom conversations, right? Because it's so like, you know, uh, mono dialectic or whatever you want to call it, right? You know, because uh, that whole like sort of heated conversation debate energy is just gone. 
because like, you know, and not to say interrupting is a good thing, but like, you know, that, you know, sometimes you like to let the classroom just go, right? You like to let everybody get really excited and, and to see where it goes and that kind of stuff. And you just can't do it with this sort of linear approach that the, this online software has done. Now, all that stated, I will say one of the nicest things is I, I teach a distance ed course and I've been doing that for years. But because UBC uh, has had to invest a whole bunch of money into online uh, um, systems like Zoom and Collaborate and those kinds of things, we have a lot more support for it. So it means my distance education class, which is a little bit more hands-off and not face-to-face, -face, we now have a live component to it. And that has made that class, I think, better. So there's been some good things that have come out of this where instead of, you know, uh, for a distance ed class, having a set of modules that you study and you never really talk to the professor except for online. Now I can actually have meetings with students and I have live help sessions and those kinds of stuff in a way that we weren't able to do before because we just didn't have the bandwidth to support uh, live video on the level that we do now. So there's some good things that have come out of this for sure. You know, and, you know, I think, you know, the level of education everybody's getting is pretty close to what it would be. You know, I just think it's just we're all struggling a little bit, put one foot in front of the other on a daily basis, you know. Um, but the thing that's important to know is that we're all going through this. You know, we all have sort of these same feelings and we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. We need to keep that conversation going. And that's why, you know, we discuss wellness, but not in a lecture, it's just in a way, just in the kind of like, you know, how's everybody doing? What can we do to make things better? Tell us, you know, all that stuff is just way more important than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And especially like now it's exam period, by the way. Th thank you, Michael, for taking um, some time out of your really busy schedule uh, to chat with me today during your incredibly busy uh, exam schedule. Um, Anything for you, Daniel. <laughs> I kind of feel bad because, I mean, I've got this community of colleagues and coworkers who I can engage with, um, but especially some of the younger uh, first-year students, second-year students, they're going through all the, the pain of first-year university, and they don't have that community, um, which is very, very worrying in many cases. And so I agree with you 100%. And, you know, the fourth-year students... You know, it's not great for them because they're missing some of the mentoring stuff and the sort of like grad school type help that they would normally get and those kinds of things. But yeah, the first and second year students, I think I feel the most for because it's just they have to come up with their own sort of normal. And, you know, as much as academics are part of the university experience, you know, it would be false to say that it's the only part of the university experience. And to some degrees, it's not even the most important part, you know, um, it's it's just part of it. And that whole social aspect is is definitely we're all struggling a little bit. And I agree with you, like, you know, it's that thing where, you know, it's in in September, you know, it's sunny outside. So if you're bummed or whatever, you, you can go outside, even if you're socially distancing. But like, you know, as we start getting into the, the BC winter, you know, and you mix the fact that we're all sort of shut in and that kind of stuff. It can, I think it starts really getting to everybody, you know, and, you know, and to be personal, you know, you and I, we, we work pretty close. Our offices are not that far away, you know, and so every once in a while I would see you walk with your teapot, right, and that would turn into a 30 minute conversation about something I had not planned that day and that just doesn't happen anymore, you know, so I feel like I'm losing touch with colleagues, you know, I know it's going to end soon and we'll be somewhat back to normal hopefully. Uh, within a year or so, but I do, you know, you, you, you really learn to value the things that you don't have anymore. And maybe that's the good thing about all this is that, you know, perhaps we can take some of the stuff and maybe this will bring about real world change in terms of our sort of social approaches to life. Um, once this all 
I don't think we're going back to what used to be normal, but whatever the new normal turns out to be kind of thing. Well, one thing that I hope we do get back is um, the experience of me leading a tour of young people to the museum and looking over their heads and seeing you walking to the museum and making faces at me, trying to get me to crack. <laughs> In <laughs> yeah, well, you do the same thing when I'm teaching, right? When you pop your head in, that kind of stuff. But to be honest with you, I miss your cookies. Oh, yes. Yeah, I haven't been baking because there's no one to eat them here. I know, yeah, totally. I have the same thing, right? Uh, just those kind of touches, you know, baking for my class. My kid, uh, normally this week, I do a, uh, uh, our, our students do a presentation. And so uh, I have a competition with my co-professor. We bake cookies uh, separately just to, just to kind of to annoy each other in terms of like you know because it's a really stupid week to add more duties you know and my kid was like where are the peanut butter cookies coming this week I'm like nah, I don't I don't have anyone to cook them for this time but yeah yeah I know but I will say it is nice to realize you're missing these things I will say it's 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 something I think we all needed a little bit in life to sort of stop and maybe realize what actually is important you know, and just how much uh, university life is social as well as, you know, uh, academic, uh, and that maybe we need to look at it more holistic uh, going forward. And then th at the very least, we've learned that we cannot convert to online classes only going forward. And I think, you know, online classes have their uses. Uh, certainly, they're important and they're really nice because, you know, students who maybe necessarily don't have the opportunity to, to be in class can take a class uh, at their leisure, you know, that kind of stuff. But certainly, they have not replaced face-to-face -face experiences. Um, and that's, that's good to know, you know, going forward. Well, Michael, uh, those are all the questions I have for today. Uh, was there anything you wanted to add before I let you go? Uh, no, other than I really appreciate everything you do, Daniel. And uh, uh, again, you're always the glue that binds everything together. So uh, 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 I really do. And I'm very much looking forward to uh, coming back and uh, you know, having things sort of a little bit more, being able to sort of avoid work and uh, walking through the museum and you know, learning stuff I didn't know before. You showing me a sample of something that you've had hidden or exposing me to radiation that I wasn't aware of, things like that. So I definitely look forward to those kinds of things. And uh, I definitely cherish that uh, the fact that they, you know, how important they actually are in our lives. So um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad you're doing this. I think it's important to keep these conversations going. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Uh, you're one of my favorite people as always. And uh, I hope that came through to everyone who's Michael. Right. And just to be clear, neither of us are getting paid to do this. So. <laughs> There's no bribery involved. Uh, and Daniel, Daniel is a very good cook. His I, I will bring skills you are pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll definitely have to look forward to that. But uh, I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, it's good to keep this stuff going. Very important, I think. I appreciate you too. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.